0: Yes, yeah. She was so inspiring that people were naming their children after her. Wow. And yeah, and including her cousin, who is known to history as the Queen of France, the unfortunate Queen of France, Marie Antoinette.
1: Hey, heroes, it's Darian, your resident string player and favorite hero. And this is Hero Talk, where we talk about real life and real women in music. Okay, let's get started. Heroes. Today with us on Hero Talk is Dr. April Lynn James, or better known as the PH Diva. April is a classically trained soprano with a focus on operas composed by women. She completed her PHD at Harvard and went on to write a book called The Tenth Muse, How Maria Antonia Advanced the Pastoral Opera. Thank you so much for being here today with us, Dr. April. Hey,
0: thank you for having me, Darren.
1: <laughs> so I have to ask, where did the PH Diva thing come
0: from? The PhDVA thing <laughs> <laughs> came from my entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. I'm on this entrepreneurial path, you know, the alt act path and the need to what distinguish myself in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And it really, it just, it was, I was working on like, what is what is my moniker? What am I known as? What am I called? And one morning I'm making breakfast and I hear the Ph diva and I'm like, That's it. Oh my god, that's it.
1: <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I mean the best the best things, you know, just come to you like that. Yeah, yeah, I thought that, yeah. I thought that was hilarious when I when I saw that on your website. I was like, oh, this is funny.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's it. Made me laugh when I said that's that's perfect. it makes me laugh because it's true. It's like, okay, I ha- I'm a classically trained soprano. I have a PhD from Harvard. Like, what else do you call that? Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I love it. Um, I feel like we should be using that term more often. Um, <laughs> but now, on a slightly more serious question, um, can you tell us a little bit about your musical upbringing and to kind of
0: like what got you to where you are today my musical upbringing well and what and how that got me here today (laughs) wow that would be a that's a a long and convoluted story but I was always singing Mm -hmm. like my earliest memory is of sitting on the swing set in the backyard of uh, our family home and just singing whatever song had caught my ear that day or whenever. And one of the earliest songs I ever was doing that with was the Carpenters, Sing a Song. So that was early on in my life. And then I was in church choirs for most of my life. I was allowed to be in the choir rather than be in Sunday school. They met at the same time. I'm very happy that my parents let me choose choir.
1: So um, did you go on to pursue uh, vocal studies at Harvard or did you study something different?
0: My, so I'm bo- I was born in New York City mm-hmm. and uh, Queens. And so what, from my first degrees, I actually went to Queens College, City University of New York, and I didn't study music as a major then because my parents were of the opinion that music can be a hobby, but not a career.
2: Mm, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, you know, I I got that one. I got that one during my lifetime. Uh, Even though, you know, I had sung since I was a kid, I had taught myself to play piano basically and guitar and stuff, but yet I wasn't supposed to make a career in it. So I chose communications Mm. and went into that field, TV and film and publishing. And I absolutely hated it. (laughs) It just. I I didn't like being behind the scenes. Yeah. I learned a lot being behind the scenes, of it, but I didn't I didn't enjoy it at all. And so then after a few years in that and those two fields and internship, like little positions here, there, and everywhere in New York City, not but nothing gelling, I said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna go back to school and study what I want to study. Yeah. So I I went back to Queen's College to do a music degree. And because I didn't have enough undergraduate credits in music, I had to do a second BA, but I always knew that I wanted to go on for a PhD. I wanted to look at 18th century music and I wanted to look at women composers because when I got back to school and I'm looking through the textbooks, you know, I forget. I think it was Grout and Poliska. I'm looking through there and it's like, okay, so there's Hildegard von Bingen (laughs) and there's Clara Schumann and what like No, yeah, What's woman happening did in the middle? <laughs> nothing. Nothing happening in the middle. I, I couldn't believe that.
1: I remember so, thinking the yeah. exact same thing.
0: <laughs> you know, that was the thing. And, I, and, I'm, and rather than complain, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to research it. So I did a second BA at Queens and did started my research there and got straight A's for the first time in my life, and that's how I got to Harvard.
1: Oh, love that. So, how did you fall on fall into um? discovering Maria Antonia because I didn't know who she was until you reached out and I was like I didn't even know this was some woman I need to be aware of which is I love because that's kind of like the whole point of hero and I'm like I need to know who this person is so tell us a little bit about
0: Maria Antonia and uh, just a little bit of her background okay well Maria Antonia was known she's known to history as the electress of Saxony because that was her ultimate title she was born princess in Bavaria the daughter of the Elector of Bavaria. At that time, the electors uh, in the German-speaking countries, the so German-speaking states, were they were the highest, you know, the highest of the high, right, in mm-hmm. those lands. Um, but they were also jockeying for position and trying to make themselves, you know, like more than an elector, trying to be king and this, that, and the other thing. So her father is actually known to history as the guy who caused the War of the Austrian Succession. Okay because he contested Maria Theresia's right to inherit the throne, being female. Yeah, so there's some interesting geopolitics mm-hmm. for, for Maria Antonia's family. But Maria Antonia was given an education befitting the eldest child of the elector. She, so she received an education in the languages and math and, and in the arts. And she showed an early affinity for the arts as a singer. Mm -hmm. and also as a harpsichordist, and she participated in events at her father's court, uh, musical events and operas and so forth. Grew up to write music, and then when she married into the Saxon royal family, so she married into the Saxon royal family up in Dresden, she went to Dresden and took her music with her, and established herself there as a composer well she was already a composer but she established her musical establishment there in the princely palace and she was sought after as a patron and if you were to go and look at her music library it's it reads like a who's who of italian opera in the middle 18th century because yeah like everyone wanted their operas performed there at that court. I mean, they were already performing Italian operas at that court because her father-in-law was big on Italian opera. Mm -hmm. But then with her arrival, it solidified that, took it to a new level, and she herself composed operas, you know, that she herself. She wrote the words and the music, and she sang in her own productions.
1: And I think you said, like, people were, like, naming their children after her or something like that? Yes, yeah.
0: (laughs) She was was so inspiring that people were naming their children after her. Wow. And, yeah, and including her cousin, who is known to history as the Queen of France, the unfortunate Queen of France, Marie Antoinette.
1: That is so, I find that so shocking how she was so overlooked when obviously she was influential for her time, which is a huge feat for a woman Mm -hmm. during that time Mm -hmm. period. For what reasons do you think that history sort of forgot her until, you you know, you came along?
0: (laughs) Well, history didn't entirely forget her until I came along. It's just that my book is is the first book length English language biography about her. Mm -hmm. But there are others that have written about her before, and I talk about that in the beginning uh, chapters of my book. It has to do, I think, a lot with the geopolitics of Germany and and Saxony in particular. One of the reasons why she eventually stopped making music and stopped making music in public anyway, uh, was that she got interested in politics. And this was a result of the Seven Years' War Mm. that... Prussia, you know, was flexing its muscle and decided to flex its muscle against Saxony it, because Saxony basically lost that war, you know, and, and it bankrupted their, the, the establishment there. It bankrupted, therefore took away money from things that people would love, like music and the arts. <laughs> music and the arts always suffer in a, in a climate where there's war. Mm-hmm. you know, it- And so... Um,
1: In what ways do you you think that, for what reasons do you think that her music is left out of the classical canon with other popular Italian opera from that time?
0: Well, I I don't know how popular Italian opera of that time is in the canon. Maybe Mm. it's more popular now than it was uh, when I was researching my dissertation, (laughs) but... Well, maybe I'm not the one to
1: speak on I'm not a vocalist. I try my best (laughs) to keep up with opera. I'm a violinist.
0: Yeah, Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I remember music history when I was learning music history. They talked about opera, but, you know, kind of on the way to another symphony. Let's get back to the symphony. See, I found the it the other
1: way. I felt like I learned a really? ton about opera music history. I'm like, we're learning about Puccini. We're learning about Wagner. We're learning about, I was like, OK, what about like a Brahms symphony? So that's interesting that you had the inverse effect.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, but, but, you, but Puccini and Brahms, Puccini and Wagner are mm-hmm. not the opera of the ni- of the 18th century no that that's is true that is true century. that's a later thing It's a totally different mindset in fact than 18th century opera especially the operas around the courts maria antonia in fact so she was really an exponent of the pastoral opera of mm-hmm. shepherds and shepherdesses in love okay that's basically i'll define that <laughs> and that was she was, because she was really, she was really known for that, and she was a member of the Arcadian Academy of Rome, which had as its goal to sort of elevate um, poetry, Italian language poetry, and concerned itself a lot with this the pastoral theme, pastoral pa- poetry, the the ideas of nobility and. The ideas of love and goodness being rewarded, you know, always a happy ending. Mm-hmm. This is a very 18th century v- value that shows up again and again in opera that you don't find in the 19th century, especially oh, no. when you're, getting- <laughs> you know, Puccini. Oh, definitely kind
1: of not stuff. Puccini. I'm like, my first thing I think of is La Bohème. Definitely not happy ending.
0: Yeah, not <laughs> Puccini. No, no, no. Yeah, that's funny <laughs> and it's also the 18th century is is really the the time of the soloist vocal soloist much more than chorus I mean, you, you know so like like people talk about Verdi and all and people love it it's like oh Verdi is really about choruses hmm. you have soloists but the choruses are the main focus in 18th century opera is there a chorus oh yeah we'll we'll put a chorus at the end of you know but it might just be sometimes it might just be all the soloists coming together and singing rather than an actual chorus yeah. coming out so it's it's a very different affect it's a very different um form of cultural expression you know but awesome. that was her that was her thing and that 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 kind of opera fell out of favor after the french revolution mm-hmm. that kind of opera fell out of favor hmm. and
1: i also wanted to ask so During this undertaking of writing a book about um, Maria Antonia, did you feel like you developed some like emotional connection to this composer? Like, like, I assume this is a very in-depth research process. Like, how long did it take you? Do you feel like, would you consider like your favorite composer at this point?
0: (laughs) Well, she's my favorite, I guess she's my favorite opera composer, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe possibly. I really did feel a connection to her, still feel a connection to her. And especially actually during the editing process, mm-hmm. I, I decided last year to, to publish this. Um, I was originally planning to publish a self-help memoir because a lot of my experience is in, in going through graduate school, surviving graduate school, has led to where I am now in my life in terms of understanding the importance of self-care and, mm-hmm. and health and all this. So I wanted to publish a memoir, but uh, I moved in the middle of editing that, mm-hmm. myself, self-edit of that. So by the time I got back to it, I just knew it wasn't going to be ready. And I'd wanted to publish at the end of last year, I wanted to publish a book and I just said, there's no way that I can get some, a manuscript ready in this amount of time. So I looked around and I thought, you know, okay, well, what else can I do? Well, you know, there's that dissertation that you never did publish and that (laughs) people recommended that you should publish. So why don't we publish that? Okay. And that's what I did. And uh, I, in the process of editing it and bringing it together, I really discovered even more of a love for Maria Antonia and what she accomplished, what she had to go through and understanding of her in the context of, of, the 18th century in the context of the court in Dresden yeah
1: I love that and so what was um I guess since it was your dissertation what was writing your dissertation on Marie Antonia like like how long did it take you
0: it only took me a year of research in Germany a, re- a year of research before that and then two years to write it wow well, that is a significant amount of time but faster than a lot of people. Sometimes people you're in graduate school. Sometimes yes, that is people, true. You no, know, sometimes they are on the ten-year plan.
1: Uh, hopefully, that is not me. Oh my gosh, I would right. survive.
0: Right, right. Uh, I, I I got out in six years, so. I did the, I, my, my journey in through graduate school that through PhD land was, was fast. PhD land. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, were you able,
1: when you are in Derby? were you able to actually like look at her actual manuscripts and primary sources?
0: Oh, yes. That's the best thing about going and doing research on someone from, you know, the past past mm-hmm. uh, and a European is to be able to go to Europe and stay there and I was in Dresden at the time before they rebuilt a lot of the old city mm-hmm. so the the Frauenkirche was still in ruins uh, they hadn't put the old street pattern back in the old part of town and but you know they had rebuilt parts of the, the castle was more or less rebuilt the um, catholic church so the the court church was the catholic church and so that was rebuilt so you can see a little bit of the 18th century Mm -hmm. skylight a little bit of 19th century stuff but the archives are where i i got more familiar with 18th century because of that yeah yeah her stuff is is in the archives that's amazing
1: i I love i love visiting archives it's like you can actually like touch the history i just i find that so exciting and i love that i love that you able got you were able to actually like you know touch it safely
0: yeah 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 it it was so wonderful and the smell of 18th century paper i mean people people who are out there who don't really understand 18th century paper smells different yeah (laughs) That's funny I'm sure it does it's a sweeter smell it's a sweeter smell because you know it's, it's a sweeter smell
1: um books in general have a great smell
0: yeah well
1: <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> um so you kind of briefly mentioned you wanted to write like a self-help book um, which I pro- kind of want to touch on that because I noticed reading through your biography on your website you're very candid about your like emotional experiences through your career and your journey to where you are today and for what reasons are you so open about sharing your experiences in your in your career
0: because i'm an honest person and (laughs) when people you know when you tell people that you went to harvard and that you have a phd from harvard people think that you um like you just have it made right Mm -hmm. that's what they think that i think that's the perception that i have received over the years people think ah someone once told me oh harvard takes care of its own (laughs) <laughs> to which i had to respond its own what mm, okay uh, because going through graduate school was not an easy thing that it was it was a rather difficult emotional and and physical journey because it was not like queen's college uh, when i went back to school to queen's college to do my second b.a I was not an usual undergraduate. I was already older than the regular undergraduate population. So I was on a first name basis with my professors. I was treated as an adult. I got to Harvard and suddenly you're a graduate student and, oh, you have to call your professors by, you know, professor so-and-so. You can't call them by their first name until after you've passed your general exams in your third year. Mm. You know, so there was all this kind of ritual stuff that, seemed extraneous to me to why it's like no i want to research this This, i want to do this stuff but it it felt really difficult um from for a lot of reasons and then physically sitting at a computer all the time and in the library all the time just doing research doing research i i was not happy Mm -hmm. my body likes to move i'm a very physical person Mm -hmm. and after a year or so of this kind of sitting around and the stress of graduate school, uh, I had started to develop depression. I started to develop tendinitis. Like I had developed tendonitis in my right arm because I was typing all the time. You're not even a and violinist. I'm like, right, I know you have a I was getting
1: tendonitis. Like, what is going on here? <laughs>
0: exactly that's funny like, what's going on that and i went up like a whole dress size i gained weight and i was like this is not this is not good this, mm-hmm. this shouldn't happen and so i had to make a a self-care plan and for myself and i immediately knew that i needed to get moving so i got away from the computer, I started taking dance classes. I took Baroque dance classes, so 18th century dance, at the Longy School of Music, the conservatory down the street from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Took classes with Ken Pierce, wonderful. I really, I really enjoyed studying with Ken. Still show up occasionally in, now he does uh, Zoom workshops and stuff, so I'll occasionally show up in his workshops. Yeah. Um, I took Baroque dance. I took modern dance. I've f- met a mime teacher so there was that's a woman fun. who taught mime in physical theater so I took that I got back into juggling because I had back taught myself into
1: juggling wow back into <laughs>
0: juggling yeah I had taught myself to juggle when I was working in television and I was bored out of my mind right
1: yeah. I feel like I'm getting snippets of a very interesting backstory right now <laughs> I'm like you worked in television what
0: <laughs> yeah yeah that's fun that was that communication degree and I was working in television. I was bored and I went to Barnes and Noble one day and there was this book juggling for the complete klutz and it came with three beanbags. And I said, well, I'm not a klutz, but if a klutz can juggle, I guess I can. Taught myself how to juggle from that. And so, then, years later, it really helped me to be able to do that because the tendonitis went away. So, after a year of getting away from the computer and getting out and being physical and doing all this stuff, the tendonitis went away, the depression went away, and the weight gain went away. So, the, these are the things I'm like, mm-hmm. Being playful and being physical; these it's important for me, and I know it's important for others. And mm-hmm. so at some point, I want to get back to you know talking more about that.
1: Oh, well, so if you happen to, are you are you still planning on writing this memoir?
0: Yeah, it's it's still it's still in draft form, and I have to pick it up again.
1: So, what kind of advice do you have for younger musicians or younger professionals who, based on your experiences, like what kind of points are you planning on addressing in your in your book?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the most important points I would address is self love, because we are. At our foundation, beings of light and beings of love, we come from a place of love. And we need to remember that because outside of us, the world is going to throw things at us that will try to challenge our ability to love ourselves. And we can't give those forces any kind of uh, credibility. It, you know, we need to stand by ourselves and know ourselves. And, you know, like I knew early on that music was what I cared about. And I'm glad that I stuck to my guns. It took me a while, you know, but Mm -hmm. I stuck to my guns and I'm like, no, I'm going to study this because this is what's calling me. And we always have to pay attention to that because it's it's a calling in our hearts It's a calling from the source that created us Mm -hmm. that we have to follow. So that's like one of the most important points. Yeah. Sometimes
1: music chooses you, not the other way around.
0: that's right that's That's basically it and
1: what kind of tips do you have for musicians trying to like stay healthy like there's so many like physical and mental health things that musicians have to be aware of at all times and half of it is a mental game so what kind of advice do you have in that in that regard to um taking care of yourself while you're studying music
0: yeah, step away from the music stand. Step away. You know, put the instrument down. Take a walk. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I know that instrumentalists practice, to my mind, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, I, I always remember that being in music school and just hearing, you know, doing scales, doing scales, doing scales, doing a passage over and over and over again. And okay you can do that but then you better take a rest and you know if you're if it's your if you're a violinist then you need to you know stretch you know you need to do those stretches you need to I I always like the idea of taking something like dance something that helps you to move your body in a different way Mm -hmm. so you're not always you know cramped up because you can get cramped up if you just stay in one position all the time.
1: Well, that is that is a good point. I mean, because I know as a violinist, it's, you know, a lot. Of, I've talked to doctors like holding the violin is kind of a bit unnatural and you're doing it repetitively and your muscles get used to the same motion over and over again. So that's a really good piece of advice. Like move your body in a different way. Like get those tight muscles stretched out. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, do yoga, take dance and pianists too. I mean, pianists, it's the same thing. They get tendonitis because you just bang, bang, you know, you're not banging on, but you know, you're playing the thing. It's repetitive motion. Mm-hmm. It's repetitive motion and a lot of sitting or a lot of being in one position. So you have to, the body does not like to be in a, in a static position. Mm-hmm. We're not created to be in one position all the time. We're created to move and do st- do other things it's very true so and and juggling even juggling is good i recommend juggling (laughs) because in in gripping a juggling bag and you don't you don't have to juggle three you can just juggle two in one hand or you can juggle you can play with one but the opening and closing motion of the hand and the throwing the throwing from you it's a different movement it's not the same thing and you know, if you take a one bean bag and you toss it behind your back over your shoulder or under your leg or under the other arm. That sounds a bit advanced. No, will... yeah, <laughs> no, but these are no, but no, but if you take one thing, one object, and toss it around your body in mm-hmm. different ways, you're automatically starting to move in your not a non-usual way for you. And that loosens up things and keeps you from developing that those tendons.
1: Yeah, those and tendonitis. it does sound like it'd be very, like, relaxing for the body. I'm, I'm only worried about my coordination, but I, I love
0: How <laughs> no, you? don't have to worry about coordination. Dropping is part of the juggling. Oh, I love and that. You, and if you <laughs> drop the ball, it's great, because then you get to bend over and pick it up, which is, okay, again, that's a good, point. good for the body.
1: Stretch that lower back. <laughs>
0: that's right. Stretch the lower back. Bend those legs. <laughs>
1: I love that. I've never had anyone recommend juggling. I, I remember I tried when I was a younger child because my dad can juggle and I like could not get it to save my life. But I have never tried when I was older. But I, I love this recommendation because it sounds like a very entertaining way to just, you know, you know, empty your mind out after practicing, kind of loosen the arms and the legs and all that out. I love this recommendation. Yeah. So everyone heard it here now on Hero Talk. You got to learn how to juggle. Good. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and... So, a little bit back to like Maria Antonia, which I think is amazing. And since you're a singer, uh, well, a soprano as well, we obviously both share this affinity for music outside the classical canon. And in what way do you think, and let me rephrase this question, how do you think we can go about expanding the classical canon? Like, do you think this starts on the stage or in the classroom?
0: It's, it's, well, I don't even think it starts in the classroom or on the stage. I think it starts with, publishing this music mm. it's it, it it's because in the classroom it's all very well and good to talk about this stuff but if the music's not available to performers and then it's not recorded what can you do with this stuff yeah uh, you know i'm very happy that i mean i haven't gotten to record maria antonia's music yet but there's a spanish group talea that they just did a cd Of her early aria's and I'm going, That's in my book. (laughs) Woohoo! I mean their recording came out in May of this year and my book came out in August. So I'm very happy that someone at last is recording this music because if we don't have the recordings, I am I started my own opera company. Okay. When I wow, look at that. (laughs) Yeah, so when I first got out of out of graduate school and I moved back to New York, one of the th- I did two things: I spoke about Maria Antonia about my research on yeah. operas composed by women, and I started the Maria Antonia Project, which is a company to bring operas composed by women out of the archives and onto the stage. Amazing, and you know, and th- thank you. It was it was, but it was tough work. It was really tough. Oh, I'm sure because I can read. An 18th century score. Not a lot of singers are taught to read 18th century scores. Mm -hmm. You know, what is out there are modern editions of (laughs) older works. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would hire singers, I would want to hire singers, and they would ask me to teach it to them, or, or to redo the score in a modern edition so that they could read it mm-hmm. and i'm looking for independent singers singers who are interested in research and can look at an older score and figure it out a skill that i learned at queen's college by the way okay before i got to oh
1: look it, at you. that <laughs> learned how to read
0: alto clef tenor clef all the clefs mm-hmm. you learn how to do that at queen's college so you know, I was looking. Yeah. Not, everything, was happens to, not <laughs> everything happens at Harvard. Not everything happens at Harvard. You come to Harvard with skills. That's mm-hmm. I came to Harvard, I went there with skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, but but then trying to do the Maria Antonia project, I I've, I discovered like, okay, it's not enough that I know this stuff and that this music is out there. This stuff has to be in modern editions accessible to teachers, students, the general public. You know, one of the things I'm big on too is amateur music making. Maria Antonia herself was an amateur. She wasn't a professional. Mm -hmm. She, you know, she was nobility. She didn't have to work to make a living. So she could essentially afford to do what she wanted. But there's, there's a whole music making and amateur musical culture at that time and for a long time afterwards that in our present-day culture is not as strong and we need that because audiences need to be aware that maybe there's stuff that they're not hearing that they would enjoy hearing but they don't know it exists so people don't know that maria Antonia's music exists yeah because it's it's not in editions it's not played on the radio it, all these different they never they never grew up within a school they're not going to hear someone down the street just playing it on their you know someone because you know, it would be great if you know walking down the street you hear someone oh i hear someone playing something oh I, and singing oh i don't know what that is and you go and find out but if we don't have it have it as as additions for regular people non-professional musicians to play how are we ever going to mm-hmm. get the awareness of it into the culture, so we
1: need to make more accessible editions. You think that's the best way?
0: There, well, it's it's a, it's just a many. It's something. It's an issue that needs to be approached from multiple directions. There's no mm-hmm. one way that's going to get this music out there into the public. I mean. It's it was so interesting to me when I found Hero Talk oh. at our Her-o-talk. Hero Talk. And I was listening. <laughs> Her-o. I was-
1: I- <laughs> See, that's my clever name.
0: See, that came to it, me one day. Uh, <laughs> I liked it. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> but when I found it and I was listen- I'm listening to your back episodes and I'm going, wow, this is some of the same stuff I was going through when I was doing my doctorate and I did my doctorate 20 years ago.
1: Mhm. I do <laughs> think there are be there are strides being made in talking about more non canical composers. I mean, yeah. some of my favorite professors here at Florida State are teaching classes that incorporate women or our classes mm-hmm. specifically talking about women composers like like mm-hmm. music theory analysis of works by women. Like that's one of the, that's mm-hmm. a class. It's an yeah. elective class, granted, but it is something mm-hmm. that's being offered, something that's being talked about. <clears throat> I also think music entrepreneurship is a big part of being a successful musician. And we're just mm-hmm. now starting to incorporate that in classes. But yeah. it is obviously you, you, you know, stating that there are still similarities, even though there's a, a, a passage of time. Like it is a slow process, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. we need more people who are willing to put in a little extra work <laughs> to acknowledge that there are works that, need to be discussed and that need to be studied, that need to be performed. Yeah. And yeah. I, I mean I've always loved those kind of projects personally. I mean yeah. <laughs> obviously yeah. I'm trying really hard <laughs> to bring them up. Uh,
0: yeah. And also I mean, with also, the other thing we have to realize though is that we're talking about music history, music theory. There's a whole lot of music out there mm-hmm. that you cannot possibly talk about within You know, one semester, two semesters, four years, or, you know, five or six years, there's just an awful lot of music that uh, professors and performers have to sift through. Um, One of the things I've also thought about the way music is taught is that we need to teach it more, less about a canon and more about the different cultures of the different times and how music developed in different cities and different countries in different ways. Maybe that helps. That's a really interesting
1: approach. I've never heard anyone assert that before. I really, that sounds really interesting. Like, do you have like an example of like, like how that would work in like, in a, in a, in a, like a city example? Like, uh
0: yeah, well, you know, because we're dealing with, if we're talking about European music
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and we're talking about music of the 18th century, where was music making, where did people make music? They made music in the courts. They made music in the church. They made music in their homes. Music was made on the streets. So music as different as part of people's daily lives, where did it show up? And then what are the differences in the music? you know what is the difference between church music and court music what is the music difference between church music and you know music that someone might play on the street or in a tavern or Mm -hmm. you know whatever um and then how is music in dresden different from music in venice yeah what is what is because there are differences um what is the influence of the music from venice on music in dresden i mean we're talking you know they're miles and miles away from one another but the composers did travel yeah you know, they did some of them get special dispensation to go from Dresden down to Italy to study with someone in Italy and then bring that music back to the court in Dresden mhm you know, that's how Vivaldi's music winds up in Dresden because some of the composers and musicians from Dresden were allowed to Go to Italy and, and study and bring stuff back. Yeah, and the prince from Dresden, he went down and he was feted by it, Antonio Vivaldi, <laughs> and brought back music, you know, to the court.
1: I think that's a really interesting approach, and I, I like that because it also talks about how like politics and social and society and culture during that time really influences the music that that is being performed and played. And yes. It's more than just, okay, this, you know, Bach came first, then you got you got CPE Bach, and then you have, you know, then you move on to Beethoven, and then you got Brahms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it does, no, music is an intensely local thing, even while being an international thing. Mm-hmm. It is intensely local. If you spend any time in Europe, you will find that when you go to Vienna, they have a very different idea and attitude towards music
2: mm-hmm. and
0: and the composers that need to be played than you will find in Leipzig, for example.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because Mozart is Austrian. Mm-hmm. Bach is German. There's a difference. You know, <laughs> these, and, these, and yeah. over here on the Atlantic, I, on this side of the Atlantic, we might not see those differences because... Because of, because of our cultural filters, right? Mm-hmm. But those are the differences, and you can't. I think that music history is often taught like there's this broad brush, and we can just apply it, mm-hmm. hook line sinker to everyone at at a certain time. Like, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way.
1: <laughs> well, I love that, and I think um, I think you might be inspiring a future you know, music history professor right now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love this thought process about getting more into like what's happening, the interpersonal relationships between the audiences and the performers during that time and how mm-hmm. they influence each other and how certain cities might interact with other cities and how they cross-contaminate musical ideas and things like that and why we yeah. hear what we hear. Not that's just- right,
0: why we hear, that's, you know, that was basically what I was, part of what I was doing when I was researching it. It's like, okay, I'm like, why do we why do we know what we know? Why do we hear what we hear? That's it's very important to understand like, why do we know what we know about music history? Mm-hmm. And when when I was doing my research, you know, that's again like the early part of my book is tracing the history of how Maria Antonia was looked at and what mm-hmm. you know who wrote about her first. So you you're doing a literature review at the beginning. And it is very important to sort of say, okay. Who looked at her and how did they look at her? What were their their ideas about what she meant? And then trying to get back to what she thought about herself and what people at the time said about her and looking at her music to get clues about that. It's really that's I, I think it's an important part oh, of, for sure of music history research, but muse anything, when you wanna know something, you want to understand it. Mhm. Really understand it. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I think that's amazing, and I'm so happy that you came on and t- you know shared this knowledge about Marie Antonia, about your career, and like all this advice for younger musicians. Um, and I have to ask, do you have like, is your opera company having any future performances?
0: I well, I put my opera company on hiatus back in 2012. Um, <clears throat> just because. Because of a lot of reasons. There was some family drama going on that I'm not going to get into here (laughs) and some career changes that had to happen. So I am currently looking again for collaborators because I really would like to record some of her music, get some of these arias from her operas out there. Mm-hmm. And
1: so, well, you know. now this will be our PSA. If any, you know, if anyone hears this and they want to collaborate, I will definitely be dropping your uh, website link in our episode description. Um, and I just want to say again, thank you for coming on Hero Talk, and you know, just you know, having a wonderful conversation about women in music, which is obviously the love of my life so thank you so much for doing that and you know taking the time out of your day to talk to me and to have for the listeners of hero talk and for anyone listening if you want to reach out again her uh, website will be linked will be linked in our episode description and if you want to learn more about future hero happenings you can find out more on our website or on our instagram where you can find all of our links which is at hero.musicians so thank you so much for being here dr april james and i hope you have a wonderful rest of your day
0: Thank you, Darren, for having me. I wish you the same. (laughs) Thank you.